Hi listeners, it's Juliana here from The Skeptical Historian. To commemorate Anzac Day this year, I've produced this special bonus episode about one of the bloodiest conflicts Australian and New Zealand soldiers participated in during World War I. It's a less well-known conflict than the others, but one that I think should feature more prominently in our national conversations. This episode contains war themes and includes first-hand accounts from soldiers and others who fought and experienced the horrendous conditions on the Western Front. Some of these accounts are disturbing, and this episode may not be appropriate for young listeners. Every year since 1916, on the 25th of April, Australia and New Zealand have commemorated Anzac Day. Anzac Day remembers the landing at Gallipoli by the Australia-New Zealand Army Corps on the 25th of April, 1915. This engagement was our first in the war, but certainly not our last. And the disastrous eight months that followed are often described by historians as our baptism by fire. As a New Zealand expat living in Australia, Anzac is not just an acronym for me. It's a history that connects the two countries I call home. And it's also part of my own family story. My great-grandfather, Henry Gibson, went to Gallipoli as part of the Otago Battalion and was wounded on the first day of the landing. He had to be evacuated from the beach and was too badly injured to remain overseas. Instead, he was sent home to New Zealand, given a pension, and lived quietly for the remaining 48 years of his life, dying at the ripe old age of 80. I think he was one of the lucky ones. The Gallipoli campaign was a catastrophe from start to finish, but it remains one of the most famous battles in the military histories of Australia and New Zealand, which is why I won't be talking about it in today's special Anzac Day bonus episode. I bet you didn't see that one coming, did you? I will certainly be discussing Gallipoli in an upcoming episode, but today I wanted to talk about a battle that's less well-known, at least in Australia and New Zealand. This is the Battle of Passchendaele which was an offensive on the Western Front of the First World War. And it took place between July and November in 1917, so about two years after the Gallipoli landing. Anzac detachments from both countries participated in this offensive, and it was actually one of the deadliest campaigns for us of the entire war. Now, this is especially true for New Zealand soldiers. New Zealand lost 843 men in one day, during one of the battles that made up the Passchendaele campaign. In terms of lives lost in a single day, that actually remains the greatest military disaster in New Zealand's history. Total New Zealand casualties at Passchendaele numbered over 5,000. And at Gallipoli, New Zealand suffered 2,700 casualties. So casualties includes dead, wounded, missing and captured. Now, the Australians suffered terribly at Passchendaele too. There were at least 38,000 Australian casualties over the four-month campaign compared to 8,000 casualties at Gallipoli. Now, of course, war is not a competition, and there are historians who argue that casualty counts really don't tell us anything except the number of men that they relate to. But I think that the high casualty counts and the shorter time frame from Passchendaele indicate that this was a much harder fought and much more costly battle than the Anzacs' first engagement at Gallipoli. The Gallipoli campaign lasted a full eight months, while Passchendaele took half the time but saw more than double the casualties. 
Now, it was our Canadian allies who eventually took the final objective, which was the village of Passchendaele, which gave the campaign its name. But the Anzacs' part in this fight was significant, and I feel it should be much more prominent in the national conversations in Australia and New Zealand. But what was the Battle of Passchendaele? And why did we lose so many soldiers there compared to other, sometimes even longer, campaigns? A few reasons. When we get back from this break, I'm going to examine them. Welcome back, listeners, to this special bonus episode of Skeptical Historian. Before the break, we were talking about the Battle of Passchendaele, but before I get into the conflict itself, I want to give you a sense of place. So Passchendaele today is a smallish town in Belgium with a population of approximately 3,000 people. It's about an hour and a half drive from the Belgian capital of Brussels, and it's very close to the border with France. It's near the famous city of Ypres, and indeed the Battle of Passchendaele is officially called the Third Battle of Ypres. Now, I visited both Ypres and Passchendaele in 2018 while on a tour of the Western Front sites associated with the Anzacs, and both of them are very pretty, picture-perfect, postcard little towns, lovely places to visit, but you wouldn't have wanted to be there in 1917. Things were not going well for the Allies on the Western Front in 1917. In the French army, there were mutinies, while the British army, and it's important to remember that the Anzacs were a part of the British army, Australia and New Zealand didn't have separate armies at this point, was severely depleted by high casualties and the constant ongoing conflict. Now, the United States had entered the war by this point. They'd entered in April of 1917. But the first American troops wouldn't arrive on the Western Front until June, and they were very small in number and were more like military advisors at that point. And the Americans wouldn't play a significant part in the war effort until 1918. Now, our other ally in the First World War, the Russians, they were not doing so well either. The Russian army on the Eastern Front was completely collapsing. The first revolution that got rid of the Tsar had occurred. Now, Lenin's Bolshevik revolution had not happened yet, but it was coming. And before the year was out, Lenin would have taken over and Russia would enter into a peace treaty with Germany, which ended Russian participation in the war and deprived Britain and France of their Eastern Front ally. But it wasn't just for the Allies that things were going wrong. Things were not going so well for the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians either. Now, Germany's ports had actually been blockaded by the British Navy at the start of the war and food shortages in 1917 were starting to cause riots in the streets of major German cities. They had resumed unrestricted submarine warfare, which means they were sinking any ships in the combat zone, regardless of whether they were British or French or American ships, they were sinking anything. But it hadn't had the impact on Allied shipping that the Germans had hoped for. The idea behind unrestricted submarine warfare had been to choke Britain of supplies. Britain being an island nation, it's completely dependent on getting supplies imported. Uh, this didn't happen, partly because of excellent British intelligence. They could usually work out where the U-boats were going to be. And also ships started to sail in convoy with destroyers, much harder for a submarine to target a large convoy and much riskier given the destroyer escort. 
Now, in Austria, the Emperor Franz Joseph, whose decision to invade Serbia in 1914 had tipped over the dominoes that started the war, had already died. He died in 1916. And by 1917, his great nephew, Karl I, was attempting to secretly negotiate peace with the Allies. Now, he hoped to end Austrian participation in the war and keep his country and his crown intact. Now, these negotiations went nowhere and actually ended disastrously for the Austrians when they were leaked to the Germans in 1918, but that's another topic for another day. In the war on the Western Front itself, the Germans and Austro-Hungarians had managed to hold most of their territory, but they hadn't made any major gains since 1916. And to be frank, the whole Western Front was in a state of stalemate and everyone was just waiting for everyone else to move. It had become a war of reaction rather than action. So with all this in mind, a major engagement should have been completely out of the question for anyone, especially for the Allies, who were quite severely depleted at this point. In fact, the prevailing wisdom of the Allied governments at the time was to wait for the Americans, who were going to start arriving soon in greater numbers, and they could relieve the depleted and demoralized troops on the ground. Now, despite this, British Commander-in-Chief General Douglas Hay, who is a very controversial figure still today, some say he was a great military genius, others refer to him as the Butcher of the Somme, more about him in a future episode, but he convinced a reluctant British Parliament to approve his plan to capture German submarine bases that were on the Belgian coast. Now, Passchendaele is relatively close to the coast, and taking the city was essential to this plan, as it would provide a secure base for the Allies to launch their attacks. Now, this looked pretty good on paper, and Haig presented it to the British Parliament, but there were a few flaws. Now, he was aware of these, but chose not to put them in his report, which I think is decidedly dishonest, and it caused a lot of problems later on. So the first issue, it was heading into autumn and the Eep Flanders area experienced high and regular rainfall during this time. Trenches were not pleasant places to be when it rained and illness was a serious problem at this point uh, right across the Western Front, actually. The Spanish flu, which is usually considered to be something that occurred after the war, was already making its way through the trenches. However, this information was being censored by Allied and German armies to make sure there wasn't panic at home. And the second issue in Haig's plan was that the towns and the areas that the Allies would have to move through to capture Passchendaele were built on reclaimed marshland. Now, they had excellent drainage systems at the moment, However, the standard British tactic when taking a German position at this point was to subject it to heavy bombardment and then send over your infantry. Bombardment on reclaimed marshland would destroy the drainage systems and it would turn the areas into a swamp. As I said, Haig was appraised of this by his military planners, but he didn't give these details to Parliament when he sought permission for his plan. And when British Prime Minister David Lloyd George expressed concerns that such an attack was likely to amount to extremely high casualties, given Haig was pushing for a full frontal assault, 
Haig dismissed those concerns. His view at the time was that any attack was going to result in casualties, and this shouldn't be a consideration if the ends would justify the means, which in this case he thought they would. Now, even if we just look at the Anzac casualty figures, we can see that Lloyd George's fears were well justified. That was an extremely high casualty battle. It it was a battle of attrition is the way it's described today. It was just throwing your men across until you beat the other side out. Now, the objectives at Passchendaele were one, as I said earlier, the Canadians did take that city, but it was a purely symbolic victory by that point as the weather, the terrain and the condition of all the soldiers at the end prevented any forward movement towards the submarine bases after the capture of Passchendaele. But what had really made this battle one of the worst for the Anzacs and ultimately for anyone who had the misfortune to be there was a series of reckless decisions by Haig during the conflict and a refusal to stop when the weather turned and, as predicted, the ground became a bog. Several times it was suggested to Haig that he needed to to retreat, to stop the assault, to move on from this area. He chose not to. Now, the other issue that the Allies faced, because, of course, this is a war, was that they were being hampered by quite fierce German resistance, the Germans occupying Passchendaele and the ground around it that the Allies needed to reach the village were not just going to roll over and let them have it in a horrible echo of the Somme, which is another campaign that Australians and New Zealanders don't talk about enough. British, Australian, New Zealand, and later Canadian soldiers were ordered to charge German positions across open ground with little cover. And unsurprisingly, they were mowed down by machine guns. I do want to stress here that the British officers were as reckless with the lives of their own men as they were with those of the Australians, New Zealanders, and other colonials. There's a persistent myth very popular in Australia and New Zealand, that British officers sent the colonial soldiers out first before sending in their own men. Now, I'll address this in another episode, but what I can tell you now is that the classist attitudes of British officers were very much in force at this time, and they didn't see much difference in the value of lives between their own rank and file and the rank and file from the colonies. A British working class man was only a teeny weeny bit better than someone from the colonial working class. But I have digressed. Let's return to Passchendaele. Now that you know what the battle was about, I want to tell you why it was such a catastrophe and why we lost so many men there. Sit tight through this break and consider this one word. Mud. Hello listeners, I am back. As you will recall, one of the things Haig neglected to mention to his political paymasters when seeking permission for his attack was that Epe and Passchendaele were built on reclaimed marshland. His own intelligence had warned him that bombardment, which was the classic British tactic across the Western Front, was going to destroy the important drainage systems that prevented the area from turning back into a swamp when it rained. But Haig disregarded this advice and proceeded with the standard tactic of bombard and then send across your infantry. And guess what happened? Ashendale became a swamp. Now, it got worse when the autumn rains arrived and the shell holes, the craters and the trenches at Ashendale filled with 
water from the sky, water from the ground, and ever more mud. Uh, it was this mud that the survivors of Passchendaele never forgot. They fought their way through a quagmire that was often, at best, waist-high, and which sucked away the trench boards and roads they laid to try and combat it. The horses pulling their field artillery couldn't get through, and the men struggled to position the heavy guns on the soft ground. Attempts to use tanks failed when tanks got stuck and had to be abandoned, but worst of all was when the men got stuck. Because once a man got stuck in the mud of Passchendaele, he would never leave. Now, I'm going to read you an entry from the diary of Sergeant T. Berry. He was a British soldier who fought at Passchendaele in October of 1917. Now, this describes what happened when a soldier became trapped in the quagmire. And I do warn that this entry is disturbing. We heard screaming coming from another crater a bit away. I went over to investigate with a couple of the lads. There was a big hole, and there was a fellow from the 8th Suffolk in it, up to his shoulders. So I said, get your rifles. One man in the middle stretched them out. Make a chain and let him get a hold of it. But it was no use. It was too far to stretch. We couldn't get any force on it. And the more we pulled, and the more he struggled, the further he seemed to go down. He went down gradually. He kept begging us to shoot him. But we couldn't shoot him. Who could shoot him? We stayed with him watching him go down in the mud, and he died. He wasn't the only one. There must have been thousands up there who died in the mud. Now, the conditions that Sergeant Barry is describing here were experienced by every soldier at Passchendaele, British, Australian, New Zealand, Canadian, and the German defenders too. Now, men from both sides who were not killed outright by shells or bullets, but who were injured in no man's land, they often drowned in the mud before the stretcher bearers could get to them and before they could be rescued, which is a horrific aspect of Passchendaele. And shell shock, or what we would call post-traumatic stress disorder, was very common among survivors. Now, this diary entry from a German officer indicates what shell shock looked like. And again, listeners may find the following distressing. A German officer with some tens of men looked up at me with blank white faces from the shell hole where they huddled. The company commander, utterly exhausted and apathetic, talked in a confused manner about defensive fire and men being buried alive, responding to my questions concerning how and why, with ironic, stupid giggles. The poor wretch was at the end of his tether. He could give no information about his position, the situation to his left and right, or concerning the enemy. The enemy, of course, in this entry is the British. Now, another person at the Somme who described the horrible effects of shell shock was British Army Chaplain Kenneth Bickersteth, who wrote, perhaps the most terrible thing of all was the laughter and tears of the shell shocked cases. I found that hard to stand. Every effort to quiet them failed. Now, British and Anzac troops continued the dreadful assault on Passchendaele for three months before, utterly demoralised and unable to continue, Haig called for a Canadian brigade to reinforce the men. The Canadian commander, Sir Arthur Curie, objected to the attack, but unfortunately he couldn't countermand Haig, and he reluctantly committed the Canadian forces to a battle which, by this point, had become entirely symbolic. 
it was obvious that even if Passchendaele was taken, they weren't going to achieve the objectives of using it as a base from which to attack the German submarines. The whole campaign had been too costly, and Curie recognised that the objective would not come without more lives being lost for what he felt was ultimately a fruitless campaign. As it turned out, he was correct. Relatively unsurprising, but horrific all the same. The Canadians took Passchendaele in mid-November, but nobody was able to go any further. In April 1918, a German offensive to retake Passchendaele was successful. And by the 27th of April, ironically, two days after Anzac Day commemorations once again took place in Australia and New Zealand, the Germans had retaken all the ground that the Allies had sacrificed so much for over four months in 1917. So to put that in a bit of perspective for you, within five months, Passchendaele was in German hands once again. However, this was another hollow victory, as the war would be over in seven months. Now, the whole futile campaign that was Passchendaele is captured clearly in another diary entry. This is from an anonymous British gunner, and the reinforcements that he is referring to are most likely to be the Anzacs. The reinforcements shambled up past the guns with dragging steps and expressions of men who knew they were going to certain death. No words of greeting as they slouched along. In sullen silence, they filed past one by one to the sacrifice. Following the armistice and the withdrawal of the German armies from France and Belgium in 1918, Passchendaele recovered and once again became a picture-perfect postcard town. This time, however, the town was dotted with memorials and Tynecott Cemetery, which is the largest cemetery for Commonwealth forces anywhere in the world, was built nearby. Almost 12,000 men, including at least 1,359 Australians and 519 New Zealanders, are buried there. Now, of course, we know that casualties at Passchendaele were much higher than that. And I say at least because there are more than 8,000 unknown soldiers whose remains were recovered at Passchendaele but who couldn't be identified. Now, I've visited Tynecott Cemetery along with many other Commonwealth War Grave Commission cemeteries, and it's the graves of the unknown soldiers that are the most haunting. Here lies a soldier of the Great War, known unto God. And those unknown soldiers' graves, they go on and on and on at every single Commonwealth War Graves Commission cemetery. It's a really hard thing to see, to know that there is a man under there. There is a soldier who is resting there and he has no name. It's it's difficult to describe. Those who have visited those cemeteries will probably be able to understand what I'm saying. If you haven't, um, try and make a chance to go within your lifetime. It's a very moving experience. However, even though their names are not on their graves, they're not forgotten. Tynecott also has one of the largest memorials to the missing, a second only to the Menin Gate. Now, New Zealand commemorates its missing separately from British Army memorials. So we know that there are 1,176 missing New Zealanders commemorated on the wall. The exact Australian figure is harder to pin down as Australia records its missing in the wider British Army figure. 
and they are commemorated within the 33,783 British soldiers missing after the Battle of Passchendaele. Undoubtedly, some of the men named on these memorials lie in the graves of unknown soldiers at Tynecott. So this Anzac Day, remember that the Gallipoli campaign that takes up so much of our national conversation in both countries was just one campaign in a war that we fought in for over four years. The first Anzac Day was held in 1916, a year after the landing, because the Australian New Zealand Army Corps hadn't participated in any other engagements yet, although before long we would be sent to the killing fields of the Somme. And it was felt that the people back home needed to be given an opportunity to grieve and to come to terms with what could be argued was the first national tragedy for both countries. Now, at this time, Australia and New Zealand didn't and they couldn't repatriate their dead soldiers. So people's fathers, brothers, husbands and sons were being buried on the other side of the world and travel wasn't as accessible then as it is now. So very few of the relatives would ever have a chance to visit their graves or the memorials where they were listed. So creating a Memorial Day gave a sense of comfort to the relatives of the dead, and it was certainly a good thing. But I think we would have done better at the end of the war to consider whether it was still the right day. Now, of course, Australia and New Zealand have been involved in multiple conflicts since World War I. But if we are going to stick with World War I dates, I have a suggestion. Gallipoli should be remembered, of course, and I don't think Anzac Day will change now. But if I was choosing the date, I would pick the 12th of October as our National Memorial Day. This was the date that the first Battle of Passchendaele began. This day would be particularly significant for New Zealand, as this is the day I mentioned at the top of the show where they lost more than 800 men in a single day. So their worst military disaster to date more than 100 years later. But it isn't just significant for New Zealand. Australia was there too. The Australians suffered those horrible conditions, the mud, the resistance, the terror of Passchendaele. And in 1917, the official war correspondent in Australia, Charles Bean, wrote, many a youngster, when he was hit out there at Passchendaele, in his last few minutes of life, when he knew the end had come, thought, at least they'll remember me in Australia. This is certainly romanticised. Dying men are probably much more likely to think of their families, their loved ones and their homes than whether or not they're going to be remembered. But I hope you do remember them and I hope you will continue to remember them. Now, of course, the First World War was not our only conflict, as I've said, and Anzac Day is supposed to be a national day of remembrance for all Australians and New Zealanders killed, wounded, captured or missing in every war before and since. But if we are going to focus on the First World War, our first conflict as semi-independent militaries, our gaze needs to be wider than Gallipoli. Gallipoli was the start of something terrible. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. So let's make sure our memories go further than a single day of a single campaign in a years-long conflict. Now I'm going to conclude today's episode with a rendition of the last post and a minute's silence. Now, traditionally, the minute silence has been held for combatant troops, but I would also like to honour the lives of doctors, nurses and non-combatants who have lost their lives in war and to all the service animals 
who have died in conflict. Today, that is generally dogs. Modern militaries still use dogs. However, in the past, this has included horses, mules, donkeys, and carrier pigeons, as well as dogs. So may they all rest in peace. lest we forget. Thank you for listening to the special bonus episode of The Skeptical Historian. This episode was produced on Wurundjeri Wathorong country, and I pay my respects to the elders of those nations and all Indigenous nations where this podcast has been listened to today. You can find more information about Anzac Day and the Battle of Passchendaele by going to my website, www.skepticalhistory.com. That's Skeptical with a K, and clicking on the blog post titled the Anzacs of Passchendaele. If you want to join the conversation, you can find me online by searching Juliana Byers on either LinkedIn or Instagram. This podcast is researched, produced and hosted by me, Juliana Byers. You can find a full list of resources used in my research by going to my website and clicking on sources. And the bibliography for this episode is also available at my website. Sound effects by Adobe Creative Cloud used under the Adobe Software License Agreement, and Pixabay, used under Creative Commons 4.0 International License. Links to all Pixabay sound effects can be found on my website. The music track The Whistle Funk by Telsonic was used under an Epidemic Sound individual license. And my podcast hosting is by Fusebox.